I'm curious, what would make you truly happy? What would make you truly happy? Not what would put a smile on your face, you know, that kind of happy. I mean truly happy down to the depths of your soul. What would make you truly happy? This past Tuesday, Lotto Max was $70 million. $70 million. Would that make you truly happy? What would you even do with that kind of money? And maybe that's excessive. Maybe you know that, but you know, one of the dozens of the max millions, that would have, that would have been enough. That would have made you truly happy. You know, contrary to our sinful nature and love of money, most of us know that deep down you can't buy happiness. I mean, maybe you can buy things that make you happy for a while, but that's not the kind of happiness that I'm talking about. Maybe for you, it's this journey of uh, the pursuit of happiness, but it's, it's found within. The pursuit of happiness found within. You need to, you know, live your truth. You know, your life is what you make it. God helps those who help themselves. Maybe this is your, your journey to happiness. But this is a big question, right? We know we can't find happiness in money. We know we can't find happiness from within, But it's a question that whether we acknowledge it or not, it consumes our minds day and night. You know, if only I had that car, if only I had that house, that money, that relationship, that lottery ticket, fill in the blank. I want you to really think about it in this moment. I know rhetorical questions, if you're anything like me, just you don't actually think, but really, what would make you truly happy? Psalm 1 paints a picture of two ways to live. Two ways to live. And so before we dive in, let's take a minute to just consider the book of Psalms as a whole. As we start this series, we're going to start with Psalm 1, and we're going to work our way through the summer chapter by chapter. Obviously not all 150, but we're going to work through and see how far we get. But the book of Psalms, like all of Scripture, is a treasure for us. A treasure. Psalms, it's the longest book of the Bible. It's made up of five individual books or collections of Psalms. It is uh, the longest book in that it contains the most chapters. It contains both the longest and the shortest chapters in the Bible. All right? Psalm 117, shortest. Psalm 119, longest. Kids? Come find me after the service and tell me how many verses are in the shortest and the longest chapters in the Bible, okay? Or I'll tell you if you can't find it. I don't want you to be distracted, but Psalm 117, really short, 119. It's longer than many books of the Bible. It's also the Old Testament book that is most quoted in the New Testament, many of which we saw as we worked through the book of Acts in our last sermon series, and we made note of them. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are referred to often as the gateway to the Psalms. The gateway to the Psalms. Lord willing, next week we'll be going through Psalm 2, and we'll see that. But in regard to Psalm 1 specifically, just an interesting fact about it. If you were to open up a medieval handwritten manuscript of the Psalms back then, you would likely see Psalm 1 not labeled by a number. It would be written in red ink, and it would be 
used and seen as the introduction to the entire book, like a preface. It wouldn't be just considered another psalm. And so, as we'll see this morning, it is through this lens of Psalm 1 that we can look through, and it'll help us read all of the psalms and really help us read all of Scripture. And so as we crack open the book of Psalms, we will see a lot of things to discover. But this morning, I want to consider a few points or words that we often get wrong. But first, our big idea. Our big idea this morning is this. And I know that this might trigger many of you to take a double take, but that's good. We'll we'll work through it. Our big idea is this. God tells us in his word how to be truly happy. I know, that's making you cringe maybe a little bit. What? Oh no, what's going on here? No, stay with me. God tells us in his word how to be truly happy. Would you pray with me? God, help us as we approach your word. Father, anything that is not of you, I pray that you would help us to discern error, Father, anything that is of you, we pray that we would fill our minds and hearts and that we would delight in your word this morning and for the rest of our days, that it would be more than knowledge that puffs us up, but that it would be applicable to our lives. Thank you for the treasure that is the book of Psalms and the treasure that is Psalm 1 and the treasure that is your word. God, help us as we approach your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what I want to do this morning is work through these six verses and point out a few words that we have twisted, maybe by our own doing, maybe by society's doing. But what I want to do, and this may seem like a trendy thing here, but I want to reclaim these words from a biblical understanding. And so the first word we're going to be reclaiming is happiness. Reclaiming happiness. And that's our first point this morning. The first word in Psalm 1 And the book of Psalms is blessed. Blessed is the man. Now this tells us something already in one word of our search for happiness. This word here means happiness, fulfillment, joy. Happy is the man. This isn't some kind of trite idea of happiness, uh, like how a box of Oreos makes me happy. This is deep-seated joy, true happiness. And so this is why I asked that question this morning. What would make you truly happy? Uh, What this passage tells us, and uh, what it tells us in even this one word, 
is something that I don't want to skip over. That true happiness, true blessedness is possible. And you may be thinking, of course it's possible. But I know many of you who are facing serious storms right now. And even those that aren't in the middle of a storm in this moment, it's easy for the cynic inside of each of us to to look and say that, hey, maybe happiness is possible, but I don't think it's possible for me. Or maybe it's around some corner that I don't know how to get to. But it is possible. And in Psalm 1, we see two contrasted characters, the blessed and the cursed, the tree and the chaff, the righteous and the wicked. And so we're going to see this unveil as we work through the passage. But before that, I want to reclaim happiness. I know, as again, as I say that, and I, like, I want to preface this as much as I can, your spidey senses might be tingling hearing something like that, this quest for happiness. And that's a good instinct. There are thousands of voices telling you where you can find happiness. And you need to train your ears to tune that out. But that's not what I'm talking about. This is what God's word says, that you can be happy, you can be blessed. And the issue isn't with what the Bible says, it's where our mind goes when we think of what true happiness is. Trust me, I am not talking about health, wealth, or supposed prosperity this morning. We don't have to be afraid about talking about true happiness because we are not talking about the alternative. And this is exactly where Psalm goes, right? It doesn't right away say, blessed is the man who does this. Right away, the author takes us on this little trip that tells us you know, what happiness, what blessedness is not. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The blessed man is not walking in the counsel of the wicked. He is not listening to the evil counsel or the voices from the world that send a message of a, a wicked or cheap interpretation of happiness. Okay. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice the escalation in language. Walk in the counsel of, stand, sit. The purpose of this isn't to illustrate three different types of people, that there's wicked sinners and scoffers. They're represented of the opposite of the blessed man, the other way to live. We call this two ways to live. There's the blessed man and the other way. And we see this slippery slope. Taking in counsel from the wicked. Then, you know, standing with them. And then sitting with them, which in ancient Near Eastern culture would have been a sign of full allegiance and assimilation. And so the language here isn't literal presence with the wicked sinner or scoffer, but adoption into their way of thinking and believing. We are called as Christians to be in this world, but not of this world. And we shouldn't be naive to know that this is easier said than done. It's different for everybody, but think about our doom scrolling on social media. Think about the toxic gossip or slanderous conversations that we get into at work, or the vile joking that we laugh along with, or the pure trash that is pretty well every Netflix original today. What are you letting indoctrinate yourself today? 
Now, this doesn't need, mean that you need to move to a commune and just distance yourself from the world. That's not what we're seeing here. But as preacher Steve Lawson says, he says, you need to be in the boat. Uh, you need to be a boat in the water, but not let water into the boat. You need to be a boat in the water, but not let water into the boat. Jesus commissions believers to go into the world and make disciples. Look at his life as the example. If we interpret the Great Commission correctly, we are sent ones. We are missionaries. We are called to go. Again, the Bible is clear. You need to be a boat in the water, but not let water into the boat. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And then verse 2, we get a but. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. But his delight. We see a major contrast. This but here means like, but rather, the opposite. The happy man, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of Yahweh. His delight I want to focus in on that word as we talk about reclaiming happiness. This is not his unbearable burden. This is not his unpleasant obligation. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. Now we see this language of law throughout the Bible. This is the law, the Torah, the teaching, the instruction of God. Now this sometimes means you know, a zoomed in lens of something like the Ten Commandments, the law of the Lord. This sometimes means the whole first five books of the Bible. Or this sometimes means, as it does here, the whole instruction, the whole counsel of God. And from our vantage point, here now, we have the Bible. We have God's revealed will to us, God's instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The blessed man is happy, not because he takes counsel or stands or sits with the wicked, but because his delight is in the instruction of Yahweh, the word of God, the gospel, the good news of God redeeming his people. Again, from our vantage point, his delight is Jesus, where the word became flesh. And so there are two ways to live. One where your delight is the instruction of the Lord and another where your delight is the instruction of the world. And so what are you choosing today? There are two ways to live. You may have even grown up in the church and known these truths of God's instruction your whole life. But where is your delight? Where are you in that quest for happiness? If we are to really reclaim happiness, we need to know where it comes from. Where is your delight this morning? Is it in the things of the world? Is it in the approval of others? What is that thing that popped in your head when you thought, what would make me truly happy? Is it in the life that you've worked to cultivate? Or is it anchored in God's word? Now this doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen by your own, you know, grit your teeth and make it happen. Some kind of name it and claim it form of happiness. 
This delight is a gift from God. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, famous passage. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is not our sinful nature to delight in God's instruction. But with God, anything is possible. And so as we delight in God's word, there we can find a treasure, true happiness. And so I ask you again, and I want you to reflect on this. I apologize, I'm beating it to death, but where is your delight this morning? Pray that God would change your affections. Reclaim happiness. Don't trade the diamonds of the glorious gospel of God's instruction. Don't trade that for fool's gold. And this doesn't just hang at this ethereal level where you know that there's an endless diamond mine in the Bible, yet it lives on your bedside table uncracked. I wasted too much of my Christian life living like that. Knowing that a treasure exists but not even be willing to put the effort in to look for it. Missing out on the many blessings that we find there. Charles Spurgeon once shockingly said this, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. That should shock you. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, Psalm 1 tells us and leads us to our next word that we need to reclaim. We reclaim happiness and we need to reclaim meditation. And on his law, he meditates day and night. On Yahweh's instruction, the blessed man meditates day and night. When you think of meditation, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? I know what comes to my mind. I think of the idea of Eastern meditation, quieting your mind. You know, um. Tim Keller points out how our understanding and the practice of Eastern meditation is actually the opposite of biblical meditation. Eastern meditation is an attempt to empty your mind of all thought and be open to the universe. Christian meditation is filling your mind with the word of God. So Christian, this meditation in Psalm 1 isn't an attempt to apply the practice of Eastern meditation to our Christian life, but it's actually the opposite. His delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Christian's delight is the instruction of Yahweh, and so they meditate on it day and night, marinate in its goodness. It's like brining meat with salt. It seeps in deep into the meat rather than just seasoning the surface. And so do you stew in God's word? Do you let the gospel so saturate your life that it oozes out of you? To paraphrase Charles Spurgeon again, he once was talking about the great preacher and author, Puritan preacher and author John Bunyan. He said, if you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed Bible. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. 
pray that God would grow your desire and delight for his word and meditate on it day and night. Read it, memorize it, encourage one another with it, sing it, say it, study it, love it. And what does this saturation, what does this meditation create? Well, we see the next word that we need to reclaim. We've reclaimed happiness, we reclaim meditation, and now we reclaim, brace yourselves, prosperity. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, I told you to brace yourself because prosperity has become a bad word in many Christian circles. And that's because it has become a false gospel in other circles. This supposed prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. There is nothing good about the supposed good news. The idea that you will be great, that you can live your best life now. Many of us have trained our ears and our eyes to see these charlatans who preach like this. But there's been a resurgence There's been a resurgence of what many are calling the soft prosperity gospel or the new prosperity gospel. You know, they look great. They sound slick. They make good music. They write compelling books. But the message is twisted. There is greatness in you. You come first. Your happiness depends on you. Again, these things sound good, right? These things sound nice. Oh, yeah. I do want to find that in me. They simply aren't true. It's not consistent with what we see in this passage or even the whole Bible. A soft prosperity interpretation of this verse would look something like, I am a strong tree. In all I do, I prosper. It doesn't seem that off, right? But look at what the text says. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. The blessed man has been planted He didn't get there by himself. The word planted here could even be translated to transplanted. He was one place, now he's somewhere else. His success doesn't come from anything he does. He is planted by streams of water, a never-ending source of nutrients that he can plunge his roots into. What's this water? What's this endless stream that we're talking about? Well, we just read about it. It's the law of Yahweh, the instruction of the Lord, God's covenant instruction. And so, because of that, this leaf does not wither. He is evergreen. Now, that does not mean, and I want you to hear this point. I want you to hear this. That does not mean that the storms never come. does not mean that the trials disappear. But when they do come, there is an endless source of life-giving water. Think about the Apostle Paul. This is why he could write something like this. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I don't want to paint some rose-colored, you know, phony baloney picture that, you know, life is going to be just peachy. 
Once we get through that gateway of Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 3 is a lament with many more laments to come. To be planted by streams of water doesn't mean you have this eternal smile on your face, that life is just gonna be peachy. But we see with how the Apostle Paul models this, this prosperity goes beyond circumstances. This is where true happiness comes from. This is why even if circumstances aren't looking good, we can say that in all he does, he prospers. The blessed man has a grander vision. His delight is in the law of Yahweh, not his own pleasure, his own comfort, his own security, his own power, or his circumstances. He is a fruit-bearing tree. A tree bears fruit, not for itself. A tree doesn't eat its own fruit, but for others. When the faithful prosper, it's not for themselves. It's not even necessarily and not likely material. But he succeeds in bringing benefit to others. And so look at this contrast again. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is a picture of two types of people, two ways to live. And now we get two images, a tree firmly rooted in streams of water and the other chaff. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not an expert in cultivation. But chaff is the the husks and the straw that are removed by threshing. Uh, To separate the wheat from the chaff in these days would have been Uh, you know, finding a way to separate the kernels from the husk, beating it, or having animals drag heavy things over it. But the problem is that the problem wasn't solved. Now you've just got kernels and the chaff all mixed together. And so what the farmer would do is he would gather up everything and he would toss it in the air and the chaff, being lighter than the kernels, would just get taken away by the wind. The slightest breeze would take the chaff away and the kernels would fall to the ground. That's how he would separate out what they didn't need. And so what a contrast we see, a tree, right? If we just brainstormed, had a round table here of, you know, what, describe a tree. You know, it's rooted, has a steady source of life by this stream. It's healthy, it endures, it produces fruit, and it prospers. And how would we round table and discuss chaff? Well, it's not rooted. It has no source of life has no endurance. The slightest breeze blows it away. There's no prosperity. It is really garbage. There are two ways to live. Rooted like a tree planted by the stream of Yahweh's instruction or like chaff, those who reject God's covenant instruction. They aren't anchored into anything. They bring no benefit to anyone. And so it's through that lens that we look through to the conclusion, the last two verses. Verse five, therefore, every time you see a therefore, it's important. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We come face to face now with two ways to live. Two pictures, a tree and chaff, and now two destinations. That's where I want to consider our final word to reclaim. We've reclaimed happiness, meditation, prosperity, and now hope. Reclaiming hope. 
Because verse 5, honestly, is bad news. It's bad news. The wicked can't stand in the judgment. The wicked can't. On their own works, their own will, their own merit, cannot stand under the judgment of a holy God. They can't even stand in the congregation of God's people. Sin makes it impossible to be made right with God. The wicked can't outwork their sin. But here's the thing. There are two ways to live. The righteous and the wicked. But it's an important note that we cannot skim coat over. We cannot miss this. How is the righteous person righteous? We need, to, we need to zoom in on this. How is the righteous person righteous? Not simply by doing the right things. Because we can't. No human can live up to this perfect standard. So this is not me waving my finger from a high horse or a high stage. We all have fallen short. We all walk in the counsel of the wicked. We all stand in the way of sinners. We all sit in the seat of scoffers. We are the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. Our delight is in our own law, not the law of the Lord. We don't meditate on it day and night. Because of that, we aren't a tree. We are like chaff, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Therefore, we need to look closely at what we're putting our hope in. If we're going to reclaim this word hope, what are we putting our hope in? Because the wicked will not stand in the judgment. We will perish under our own merit. But what did we see throughout this whole passage? We don't find blessedness or happiness from within. We find it by meditating on God's instruction. By God's grace, we can delight in the gospel. We can be like a tree that didn't get there on its own. No more than the tree you see at the nursery and a little planter with no source of water waddling its way over to a river, planting itself and drinking up those nutrients. That tree at the nursery, that literal tree, has a better chance of doing that than you and I have of saving ourselves. But by God's grace, we can be planted or transplanted where our delight can be this endless stream of blessing and instruction. We can know true happiness, not the cheap prosperity that we hear too much about. Sure, that Oreo, right? It'll make you happy for a moment, but don't trade that Oreo for a lifetime, an eternity of buffets. What would make you truly happen? We come again to that question. Each of us are faced with two options, not three, not four, two. Two ways to live. Will we be able to stand in the judgment? Or will we be known by God? The word here that we see when it says, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. This word here for knows is more than an awareness of. It is to be intimately familiar with, to maintain a relationship with. And so how is this possible? And I can see, if you're doing the mental math, you're saying, okay, we all have sinned, we can't stand under the judgment, yet somehow it seems like the blessed man can be known so intimately and stand in the judgment? How does this work? God made a way. 
the covenant instruction that we are to meditate on day and night is the story of the Bible, the story of God making a way for rebellious sinners like you and like me to be known by God, known by God and counted as righteous. God knew that we could not do it on our own. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the only truly blessed life. The only life that didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, that didn't stand in the way of sinners, that didn't sit in the seat of scoffers. The only life that truly delighted in the law of Yahweh. The only life that truly meditated on that law every minute of his life. The only life truly planted by streams of water whose leaf never needed to wither. Yet, he chose to become chaff so that we could prosper. He chose to stand in the judgment so that we could be known as righteous. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our destiny, apart from God's grace, was to perish with the wicked. And even though he was perfect, Jesus perished on our behalf. Now, our perishing, final. Jesus' death, Jesus perishing, not final. He rose on the third day, doing what we could never do. He defeated death itself, satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. Today could be the day where you truly realize the blessing that there can be for you. Will that mean all your problems go away? No. But your biggest problem will go away. The sin, the weight that you can never bear on your own. The blessed life, the abundant life, is through faith in Jesus, who paid the price for your sins and my sins. And by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone, delighting in him, you can be blessed. I know that this idea of finding blessedness or happiness sounds trite, but it isn't. True happiness is more than that Lotto Max jackpot. True happiness is more than that blissful retirement. True happiness is more than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. Jesus famously anchors his Sermon on the Mount with similar language to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man. And Jesus tells us how to reclaim true happiness and prosperity. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice 
and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So consider a biblical definition of true happiness. Give up being anxious for the things in life that we pursue every day but can never make us truly happy. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus tells us where to find the blessed life. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This morning, I want us all to come face to face with these two ways to live. Enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. It will cost you everything, but in the best way possible. Look to Jesus and delight in him. Let's pray. God, our hope is in you alone. God, when we come face to face with these two ways to live, we know that our hearts are wicked. But because of the gift of your son, you see us as righteous. Lord, give us a bigger vision of what true happiness is. Help us to look to you, to meditate on your word, and to prosper, not in a way that our sinful hearts want to prosper, but in a way that is rooted and grounded in you. Father, as we come to the table and share in communion, we reflect on the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. God, we are grateful for the instructions that you have given us in your word and how we are to worship. We are grateful for the songs that we sing, for the scripture read and preached, for the prayers prayed, and for how we can see the dramatic presentations of the gospel in our baptism and the Lord's Supper that mark us out as your people, outward signs of an inward change. And so we reaffirm our union with Christ and his people in this supper. It is our joy to proclaim Jesus' death as we wait for his return. God, help us that that would never grow old, that we would never get tired of the glorious gospel. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed for us that we can pray. Amen.